When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, that was Christmas for you, Matt. That <laughs> was Christmas yeah. for me. Uh, it was oh, it was uh, stellar. Um, so many presents. I'm loaded under with presents now, and uh, everything went famously. And it turned out everything in the world has now been resolved. Uh, so over the over the Christmas break, who'd have thought? Which is a surprise. It is a surprise for anyone back in sort of early December. It would have been a massive surprise. But here we are on the 27th of uh, of December, and it turns out everything's fine. So much to look forward to, yes. in fact, in the new year. Yeah. I'm wearing my Christmas clothing. <laughs> yes, yes. Everything yes, I'm wearing yes. was a gift at Christmas. Oh, was it? Oh, I, oh, I thought like Santa clothing. No, no. I no. thought you were yeah. impressed by my <laughs> wardrobe as ever. Anyway, um, so we thought we would... Uh, I've just got to realise we've got jokes to do. Yes, we do. Jokes, because uh, oh, nothing quite says... Night quite says Christmas like uh, Christmas jokes. Do you want one from me? No. Good. Uh, did you hear about the man who stole an advent calendar? He got 25 days. Boom. I can't, I can't find mine now. You can't find your jokes. That might be deliberate. That's, yes, uh, I, I think it is. Hang on a second. No. Uh, as you know, Simon, Santa very busy on Christmas Eve. He has to visit nearly 396 million homes. But did you know that it's recently re been revealed how Santa manages to get round to all those addresses? He keeps a logbook. Logbook! Because, which probably would have worked when we all had log fires, but still... You know, he's coming down the chimney. So as 2023 draws to a close, we thought we'd look back on some of the highlights of the year, of which nothing you've heard so far is going to break into your highlights of the year, I suspect. So to kick us off, a novel that Matt and I uh, really enjoyed, Damascus Station. That was superb, wasn't it? I remember saying when, um, just before we uh, interviewed David McCloskey about that book, uh, this is the book that this is the bar that every other book that we do this year is going to have to clear, and I'd say only only two books I would pick above mm -hmm. Damascus Station, and I I still think Damascus Station is superb. I loved the uh, the SDRs, the the standard diversionary routes that the characters have to go on to make sure that they're not being followed, um, and and obviously all the insight that David brought to brought to that book um, because of his. His obvious past, even though he's ridiculously good-looking as well as talented. Well, I, I don't believe. I actually don't believe he, it was him. Actually, oh, really? that, the whole thing is made up by the CIA. Oh, AI. Anyway, yes. here's the former spy turned novelist David McCloskey uh, joining us back in March and talking about his rather sickening writing routine. I do almost all. Of, so I'm in. I'm actually in my bedroom right now. I've got three children under the age of seven, and so they're out getting breakfast um, in the in the main area. Um, I do almost all of my writing at coffee shops, and it's very loud. And I, for whatever reason, find that to really work for me. So I, I sit at the same coffee shop pretty much every day. I get the same thing. 
I sit down at the same time. That's where I do almost all my work. There's one exception, which is one week a year as I'm pushing toward the final, really the final third of a book, I'll disappear and go to a house um, in a town outside Marfa here in southern Texas near the Mexican border. And I'll sit there for a week and finish the book. And that's that's probably my happy place because I, I'll write for about 16, 17 hours a day for four days straight until it's done and just comes out. But it's it's either that or the coffee shop, one of the, one of those two. That is amazing. I don't think we've what? ever had anyone answer the, as the coffee shop before. That is amazing. 16 to 17 hours a day? What? <laughs> this is incredibly depressing. I love it. It's it's the one of my best weeks of the year. I get up at 5:30 and I start writing and I I don't I don't end until the, you know, the evening of of that day. I just I get into a zone. Um it's important that you do it at the right part in the book because if you do it too early, you're going to end up writing a whole bunch of stuff I, at least for me I don't keep, but if I do it toward the back third I, i'll i'll finish i'll usually get about 40 to forty-five thousand words done in about three and a half or four days well i'm i'm already fed up with speaking to you because uh, that's just that's exactly not what i want to hear david mccloskey there taking us back to uh march um and talking about damascus station yeah so next up uh here is best-selling author cecilia ahern who came into the studio in april to talk about her novel, A Thousand Different Ways. And on our Q&A episode, as ever, we like to surprise our guests with a question from another best-selling author. And this time we went for a best-selling author plus podcast guest, John Boyne. Hi, Simon. Hi, Matt. And hi, Cecilia. It's your old pal John Boyne here with a question from a very rainy Dublin. I remember years ago reading that you preferred to write very late at night and into the small hours of the morning, like some beautiful creative owl or maybe a literary Dracula. Do you still do that? Or do you now write during the day? Oh, lovely John. That was a nice <laughs> surprise. Um, no, I, I don't do that anymore. And, and I wrote P.S. I Love You, my very first novel, 19 years ago, um, from 10 o'clock at night till six in the morning. And then I'd sleep till two. And then I'd get up and type up what I had handwritten the night before. So that was a very intense experience. Um, but when I started having kids, that had to change. So I, I'm now, like, I became a nine-to-fiver. <laughs> but there must have been a reason. Why, what, what what was attracting you to, to working at night, Cecilia? I mean, it was clearly working for you then. What 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 about working at night really worked for you? It's so peaceful, I think. And it's quite selfish as well. You feel like the world is yours. There's no distractions. Nobody's ringing your doorbell. Nobody's emailing you or, or texting you it is absolutely your own time and um and it's it is kind of i think it was a selfish way of living because by day you're not really accessible either you know nobody can reach you because mm. you're you're sleeping off what you know you're sleeping but yeah it was very it's, it's that feeling of i also think sundays have the same feeling you know that kind of slower calmer less stressful time um and it was, I felt like I had all the time in the world, actually, to just be alone and create without anyone distracting me. Cecilia Hearn there, uh, taking us back to April. It keeps on saying talking us back to April, but that mistake is 
been repeated at least four times. So I'm now beginning to think, should I be saying Cecilia Ahern talking to us? Oh, talking, talking to, us. to us back in April, maybe. Talking to and us. And she's also taking us back to April in a sort of uh, Doctor Who style. Next, the book I think might be Matt and I's book of the year. Uh-huh. All the Sinners Bleed by S.A. Crosby. So I've waxed lyrical about Damascus Station. What did you, what did you love about um, All the Sinners Bleed? The reason when I... Well, I think the moment that I realised it was going to be one of my favourites is that, as you know, one of the things that I really don't like in a book or a TV series or a movie is serial killers. Um, I cannot understand our obsession with serial killers. Uh, I find them uh, usually an excuse to uh, kill women in different ways, you know, and, and our interest in that is just strange and I don't share it. And then I realised that I was really, really enjoying a book, which was pretty much exactly yeah. going down that that path. Um, and I think it's due to the genius of S.A. Crosby that actually he hooked me in and I was thinking, no, 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 I absolutely want to, because yeah. there was so much else going on. Uh, so here is S.A. Crosby. Uh, he joined us in June. Uh, he was in New York after what I think we assumed was quite a good night. You sound magnificent, by the way. You, you sound yeah. like... Uh, you, it sounds as though you've been drinking the way Titus Crown, your cop in this show, drinks towards the end of the book. And you know, you've had like two hours sleep. Would that be right? Um, that's a fair assessment. <laughs> so we're going to get the difficult bit over with to start with, even before Matt describes the cover. And that is to say that we both think this is our favourite book of the year. Yeah, Definitely. Oh wow! Thank you so much. I I truly appreciate that. Um, I don't I don't know how to respond to that. I just I thank you so much for uh, those kind words. Okay, well there you go. We just we tell you. But now the now the cover, uh, the UK cover looks very different to the US cover. Um, if because I, I was looking for your book, the American cover has it got like a sun on on the front, like a golden ball? Would that be right? <laughs> Yes, it's a it's supposed to be a uh, an autumn moon uh, shining through the uh, the branches of a of a willow tree. Yes, right. Okay. Well, in in, in complete contrast, yeah. The UK cover, Matt. How would you describe? Yeah, there's it? no sun here, or indeed any moon. <laughs> it is basically it is ominous. That's what's um that's shouting out from this uh, cover. So the well, a dark cloud takes up the entire top half of the front cover, and then below that, we have the silhouette of a tree with there's no leaves on that tree, and a very <laughs> desolate landscape behind it, uh, with a little break in the clouds. But really, it's all shouting out bad things are yes. about to happen. Uh, all the sinners bleed uh, in block red. Uh, New York Times best-selling author S. A. Cosby in white and then the Daily Mail says a voice as stark and distinctive as Elmore Leonard uh, the Times says up there with the great artists of noir it's just interesting that, that the American cover looks kind of optimistic <laughs> yeah. and the UK, yeah. UK cover looks bleak oh boy I don't know if I would call the, the American cover optimistic but yeah the UK the UK cover definitely uh, transmits the idea that uh, things are, are not great here. Yes, that's true. And and just just one other th- quote. This is from the back cover from oh, yeah. 
uh, one of my favourite authors who's been on the pod a number of times, Michael Connolly, who says, and this is kind of all you need to know, S.A. Cosby is not only the future of crime fiction, but of any fiction where the words are strong, the characters are strong, and the story has a resonance that cuts right to the heart of the most important questions of our time. Boom. boom. And indeed, another boom, because <laughs> there you go. If Michael Connolly says that, then that's what you need to know. So, uh, Sean, tell us... Um, uh, hopefully you can hear us fine on your phone and you're sounding fine and dandy as far as we're concerned. Uh, tell us about Titus Crown, who is our uh, our hero here. Yes, thank you. And also, that was so kind for Mr. Connolly to say. I truly appreciate that. I'm still not over the, uh, the heady feeling of having people you grew up reading their books say such wonderful and, and supportive things. Um, I, it's one of the things I hope I never get used to. Yeah. Um, and so, so Titus Crown is a former uh, FBI agent who has returned to his home of hometown of Charon County, Virginia, a small little hamlet on the coast of the state. Uh, he ran for sheriff because he could not stand the way the sheriff department was treating all of the citizens of the town, but specifically the black citizens. He's a he's a black man himself and. Um, to the surprise of everybody, including himself, he won and he became sheriff. And as the book opens, he's coming up on his one-year anniversary. Um, things are going okay. Uh, they're not great, uh, as he says in the book. You know, um, the black citizens of Charon don't trust him because he's the cop, and some of the white citizens of Charon don't like him because he's a black cop. And so he's sort of this um, a pariah in many ways. And but then something awful happens uh, in the town and it's, it's up to Titus to sort of uh, stand in that gap and, and not avert his eyes when, when the darkness arises. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us something about Charon County? Um, I, I've looked it up. I can't find it. So I'm imagining you, you've, you've invented Charon County because Charon is the, the ferryman of Hades in the Greek underworld. So, I mean, if ever there's a county that says don't live here, it's Charon County. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so first, so uh, for full disclosure, I make up all my towns because I'm terrible at geography and I'm very lazy. So <laughs> I make them all up. Right. So that way nobody can fact check me on where things are. Um, but also, I the book is sort of my attempt at a sort of Southern Gothic atmosphere. And in most American Southern Gothic novels, everything has a meaning, every name, every... Uh, 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 local uh, custom and so you know I intentionally named the county Charon County uh, you know even Titus's name means forthright and of course crown means king and so all those things are, are subtle attempts to create a certain type of atmosphere but yeah Charon's a, a terrible place it's just it's just awful S.A. <laughs> <laughs> Cosby joining us back in June and indeed talking to us back in June. Yes, he was talking to us back in June. Um, so we also obviously cover non-fiction on the pod. Uh, this year we have spoken to, uh, amongst others, Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, about his book Breathe, uh, the actor and comedian Cariad Lloyd about uh, You Are Not Alone, and the journalist Daniel Finkelstein about Hitler, Stalin, Mum and Dad. I'd have to say that is one of my favourites uh, that we've done this year. Uh, and this is Daniel talking to us uh, back in July. My mother and her sisters and my grandmother were sent to Belson and not, as my great-aunt was, to Sobibor. Sobibor 
like Auschwitz had was an extermination camp. Unlike Auschwitz, nobody survives. So you go to Sobibor, your life expectancy is three hours, and that's exactly what happened to them. Uh, why was one group sent to one in one direction and another sent to Belsen? Well, Belsen was a camp created by Himmler as an exchange camp. You, uh, he thought he would use Jews. He realised they, they may not be winning the war in quite the way they think, so he's going to try to use Jews as hostages. He's going to take these Jews and swap them for arms, money, uh, tanks, uh, possibly, and he collect, he'll collect them together in one camp, and that camp is Belsen. And what happens, of course, nobody really uh, is swapped. Hardly anybody's swapped. I uh, will come to it. And everyone starves to death, particularly when they begin to move people from other camps into Belsen. But to go to Belsen, you needed to prove you had some exchange value. And that meant that you were you had citizenship of somewhere else. Well, my mother was a citizen of Paraguay. She had never been to Paraguay. We have no Paraguayan relatives. Um, the Paraguayans knew that these, this was false. Uh, the, the Allies knew this was false. Here's the, the puzzling thing. The Germans yes. knew it was false. But all three of them thought it was useful because it created a fiction which allowed these Jews to be potentially uh, swappable. And my mother was indeed among almost nobody ends up getting swapped, but 136 people do. My mother, her sisters and my grandmother were. So so the book is contains within it the story of how these passports and why they were created. They weren't false, but they did contain a lie and they were paid for essentially. But uh, why my um, mother had one well that's a slightly different question and uh you know i'll leave that to the reader to to uh, discover yeah daniel finkelstein talking about his book hitler stalin mum and dad finally let's talk about a bird in winter by louise doughty uh we like this i think very yeah much. we did uh, i uh, again this was a bit it's a it's a bit of a spy book but it's basically it's a uh, woman on the run and how she goes completely off grid uh, when uh, the uh, the might of the security services are trying to track her down, and I won't lie that the the, the fact the, the point where I really started loving it was the bit where uh, the lead character uh, rocks up in Carlisle uh, because I very she, specialist information she is really. very specialist because it is a city I have a strong connection with, and the fact that she um, has her turning left out of the station, walking past the citadel, and then into the city centre, and then into a coffee shop that I. No, and that uh, uh, is a coffee shop that uh, is notorious amongst me and my wife for having the worst service in Carlisle, ah. and uh, and so she, the fact that she was in that that coffee shop, uh, I loved it. But obviously, uh, I loved it for the writing. I loved it for the for, for the situation as well. So uh, we were big fans of big fans of that book. So here's Louise talking about the book back in September. There's a limit to which you can research spying. For some reason, those people are quite secretive. I don't <laughs> know why. Yeah. They're quite resistant to writers coming along with notebooks and asking them lots of questions. Odd. Um, but, you know, it's a branch of the civil service. And like any other branch of the civil service, there's a huge amount of bureaucracy. And so whenever we see a spy film or read a spy novel, or um, whether it's Jason Bourne or a John le Carre, what we tend to forget is the immense amount of bureaucracy that has to support any field agent. And in fact, Heather, she's in her 50s in the novel, she has only had a very brief period as a field agent. She She's a bureaucrat. She's a pen pusher, which was deliberate because I, I wanted to make it clear that when she goes on the run, she's at a considerable amount of risk. I mean, she's competent and, and she's brave and she's resourceful, 
but she's not somebody who's done this for a living. Um, she's worked in an office in a pencil sh skirt and, and court shoes. Yeah. She has had a short spell in the British Army because I needed to make her physically competent on a most, most basic level. So she's, had, she's left in disgrace after six years. But uh, you're absolutely right. And the bureaucracy behind spying is something I think that's very rarely written about. Um, also, female friendship is at the heart of the story. Can you just talk a little bit about... Because, yes, it's Birdie. She's on the run. That's the heart of the story. But also, she has a friendship at the heart of the story as well. She does. So when she's in the British Army, she forms a very close friendship with another young officer called Flavia. And it's the 1970s, so they're not at Sandhurst. Women weren't allowed to go to Sandhurst at that point. They're training in the Women's Royal Army Corps. And... They have a very intense friendship. They both end up leaving the army in difficult circumstances and their friendship persists. But then their paths take very different routes. Uh, Flavia goes off and she becomes a single parent. Um, Heather goes to work in the city. This is before she's recruited to the secret. Shall I repeat that bit? Heather goes to work in the city. This is before she's recruited to the secret services. And at, one, at some point, there's a fallout. And I really wanted to write about how painful it is to fall out with your best mate. I think there's been a lot of, you know, everybody knows how painful it is to break up with a spouse or a lover. But actually, the falling out between friends can be incredibly painful and somehow quite inexplicable. And then you reach a point where nobody wants to apologize and then it all goes horribly wrong. And then, of course, the relationship with Flavia does come into the present day story when yeah. she goes in the run. But you're right, it's, it's the most significant relationship that Heather has in the book. And what's it, I hope this isn't sort of giving too much away. The reader might expect one of two things. One, their mates. Two, their lovers. And the truth is, neither of those. No, they exist in that grey area between which I think is a lot more common than we talk about. I think you can have intensely romantic feelings for a friend, uh, even if it doesn't tip over into a sexual relationship. I think that's far more common. I think relationships are nuanced and detailed and they're also changeable. And I was really interested in writing a very close friendship into that grey area. And I, I really, I'm a huge admirer of Elena Ferrante. And in fact, when I introduced the novel um, to my publisher, when I pitched it to them, I said, imagine if John le Carré and Elena Ferrante had a secret affair, what would their love child look like? Rather grandiose claim for your <laughs> own work. Um, but I, I was aiming for something that, although it had this plot of a woman who works in the intelligence services on the run, it is really about her emotional life and her intense friendship with Flavia. My instinct is that most people, when they're reading this book, well, basically I'm going to project myself onto most people reading this book as, as to how... It's not about you. It's all about me, really, is uh, how they will feel uh, reading it uh, about the situation that Bird finds herself in. And what, that's a roundabout way of me saying I found myself incredibly paranoid whilst reading the book because Bird is paranoid, sometimes for very good reason. But it's basically, she's on the run, so she's thinking, is that kid with the hooded top, is he following me? Is that couple who inexplicably are wearing a suit uh, in this... Uh, tiny village miles from why on earth would you be wearing a suit miles from anywhere that doesn't make sense they must be after me and without giving anything away about the ending a central character may well have been uh, acting against heather the whole time was that was that a sort of a uh, a frame of mind that you were wanting to create in in our minds as we're reading this uh, this idea of paranoia very much so and i mean it's not hard to imagine 
how paranoid real spies must get because it's their job to be suspicious. It's their job to look around them. It's their job to second guess. Um, and to to think about the ways in which that would feed into your ordinary life was not very hard. I, I did have a cup of tea with a former director general of MI5. I can talk about him because he's retired. All right. And he said I could thank him publicly. So it's Lord Evans of Weirdale. And uh, that was, uh, he suggested we met in a hotel lobby. And I, I wondered whether he, he was kind of channeling his old life there in a cafe in a hotel lobby and just before I left the house, I, I threw on a raincoat and belted it. And I got there and I did say, oh, no. <laughs> looks like I'm auditioning. You know, and luckily he had a sense of humour, you know, and he said, oh, how long have you got? Um, but I was sitting there talking to a former director general of MI5 in a hotel lobby wearing a raincoat. And what was interesting is that he obviously was going to tell me absolutely nothing. <laughs> and I knew he wasn't going to tell me anything. And he knew I knew that he wasn't yeah. going to tell me anything. So it was really a question of observing each other. I just wanted to see what he was like. And obviously, it was, it's been his job to observe people all his life. And the habits of that constant observation, it's not hard to imagine what that does to a personality. And I'm very, very glad to hear I did it to you. Too. That, <laughs> is, that's made me very happy. Is is the sweeping the room, did that come from him? Just, just explain what sweeping the room is. Sweeping the room is when uh, somebody, a spy or someone else goes into a room and they do a very quick assessment. So, okay, there were 11 people in this cafe there's two women over there. There's a man sitting there with his back to the wall. Um, that's obviously a sign that they're being watchful. There's a couple of people with a toddler and they're looking for who might be a risk, who might be a counter agent, who might be also observing the cafe. And of course, we can all do that when we go into a cafe. But the trick to do it is without anybody realizing you're doing, you're doing it. And that's obviously one of the primary skills that spies have to learn. So there you have it, our best of the books of the year for 2023. Be back on the 10th of January when we'll be welcoming the journalist and author Araminta Hall uh, to our fabulous podcast to talk about her new novel, One of the Good Guys. Uh, so I guess we wish uh, everyone a happy new year. We do, yes, because obviously uh, Christmas has passed, yes. hasn't it? Yes, Christmas um, has passed and yet new, the new year looms and I think it's a new year full of... Um, Light and optimism. Is it really? Yes. Oh, wow. I've just discovered. Because it feels like since 2015 that that hasn't been true. Either but, that but... or the wheels are going to come off completely. Oh, really? Because mm. 2024 is going to be possibly a year of a general election in this country, a an elect presidential election in the States. I think there's an election in most of the other European countries. So plenty to look forward to, yes. kids. In fact, here's just a little uh, insight into what's going on Chez Mayo. Oh, yeah. Most of the packages that are arriving, you could order if you were a prepper, basically. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Wind-up radios, wind-up torches. That's how much we're looking forward. So you you saying that 2024, your prediction of optimism and light... Uh, because is, I've taken yeah. receipts... Oh, because I'm going to be fine. Yes. I'm going to be fine. So long, everybody. Yeah, best of luck. And I've also got, you know, a microphone and a laptop yeah. and headphones. Yeah, it's all going to be fine. Happy New Year.
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.